Hello and welcome to Money Chill Out, the podcast to inspire and feel good about your money. I'm Marika Fino, a woman in my 30s, ex-trader in the city of London, a yoga teacher and the owner of my financial empowerment business. On this podcast, I want to open up the discussion around money and investments and dive into personal finance management, which can be a great liberator, but also a huge stress factor in our lives. Every other week, I'll be joined by guests for conversation on money, mindset, investment habits, and any best practices they abide by. So join me on this journey as we unpick the complexities of finance and get more comfortable talking about our money. You too can get financial peace of mind and it starts with empowerment and knowledge. Let's go. Hi, Mick. Welcome. Hello. How are you? It's great to be on the show. Thank you. No, thanks to you. I'm super pleased. You're an investor, Consella. You're based in San Diego. You're self-employed and you have over 40 years of investment experience. And what you like most is setting up long-term goals for people and then, of course, meeting these goals in a steady, conservative fashion. And I guess it's all about vision, consistency and diversification. So we're going to see about that. But today, we're talking about financial clarity, which is a super important topic as it's one of the first steps in your investment journey. And what I mean by that is that you can't go anywhere if you don't have that awareness. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I really think it's an underestimated topic because people don't realize how powerful it is. No question. I totally agree that most people often tend to ignore this because there's so many quick fixes out there. You know, if you look at the internet, you say, you know, what are the four or five things or eight things that I need to know to invest? And you look at that list and you say, okay, I can do, I can do most of these things. And then you go off and start it and then something happens. Maybe it's the pandemic. Maybe it's, it's something less than that. It's a war. It's something. And the market starts acting a certain way. And if you haven't really dealt with the underlying components of financial clarity, what's the first thing that all of us do? We panic. And then we throw out all those things, that list that, that we thought we could easily do, you throw it out the window and you're in a panic. And then you start, you know, listening to, you know, 24 hour news channels to tell you what to do. And you're zigging this way and zagging that way. And in my experience, every time you zigzag, you're, you're going the wrong direction. <laughs> if you haven't really dealt with your emotions and your feelings and your real goals, and then what you're going to do when things happen that, that are surprises, you're going to miss out the long term. And the long term is really the benefit of all this. But that requires that patience. And the patience means you've done your homework first. Mm -hmm. I love that. So how would you describe the term financial clarity? To me, financial clarity is really understanding, first of all, your long-term goals and what you want to accomplish, how you're going to accomplish it within whatever job or money that's coming into you is how your risk tolerance is. We're all different in that way. Some of us can take a lot of risk and we're very aggressive and, and we do well that way. And some of us aren't. And so look inside yourself. I mean, we've all grown up with different thoughts and feelings put in our head from our parents and our people we grow up with. And, and I think if we haven't dealt with those emotions, at least somewhat, we're going to get you know conquered by the, the market will beat us up. And we don't know what to do with that. And so to me, part of financial clarity is really understanding yourself. You understand yourself and the emotions 
then you can move into the objectives and the risk tolerance and, and the other underlying components of financial clarity, which is really understanding the whole concept of what you're trying to accomplish and how you're going to do it, given where your own emotions are. Mm -hmm. And so it's really broad because it mixes quantitative and qualitative concepts. Of course, you need to go like from your current situation, but uh, as well, all of your numbers, what's coming in, out, your goals, probably investments, and all about the mindset and how you act and react towards money. So very, very broad. And yet that's the, the only have to do that homework, not that often, because once you've done that homework, then the power of sitting is really what can do the thing. So, so many people don't want to do that initial step because it sounds hard. It is. And believe me, it does change through the years. And, and we learn lessons about ourselves through our mistakes. And, and sometimes you start off and you, you say, well, that didn't work. And you've got to readjust. And, and that's all learning. I mean, I've been in the business 40 years. And I think as we talked earlier, I'm still learning. And I'm learning about myself and learning about everything. And so we need to be patient and humble with ourselves too. But you've got to do that first homework. And then the numbers are actually the easier part of this business, I believe. No, I totally agree. And it totally links to the what you explained earlier. You can have the best plan. You can be surrounded by the best people. If you don't control your emotions and there's a shock, then you're going to do something really stupid that you, of course, did not plan. But yeah, so you really need to understand who you are and why you're doing that. Yeah. Exactly. And have you noticed through your experience that clarity is linked to wealth? What I mean by that is if you have a sound financial situation, are you more likely to have more clarity or it's not linked at all? I think that there is, it really depends on the situation that I've worked with some clients who I think it was more intuitive or how they grew up. And so I worked with one woman, a teacher, and never made a lot of money in her life as far as, you know, what you get paid in teaching. You know, of course, not enough for most teachers. But she always knew she had to save money. When she was a little girl, she rolled the quarters with her mom and, you know, put them in the little paper bags and saved money. She always said that when she was given an allowance to go to school, she knew she had to save a few pennies and nickels to, you know, because she wanted to buy some candy after school or whatever it was, but also put a little money away. So that was something that, that for her, it was just in her mind. And if you can believe it or not, over the years, she's acquired millions of dollars by just saving the money, investing the money, and really not worrying. Her uncle told her once, you buy good stocks and let them go and don't worry about them. And so if something was going wrong with the stock market, she didn't care because she had that balance and she had it from growing up. So that was more intuitive. Some of us didn't have that lesson growing up. We spent all the money on our <laughs> on the candy and, and other things, or, or we, we even grew up with, you know, with scarcity. Sometimes our parents told us, you don't, we don't have anything. We're poor. And so you ended up borrowing on your credit cards. And so some of us have to learn through experience of what clarity is. And I think that's the hardest part. The, I'm not saying it was easy for that teacher, but she grew up with that intuitive sense of what we all need to learn at some point. And I really like the fact that it's not what you make, it's what you keep. <laughs> it, it makes you like a much more humble. <laughs> you know, and that's so hard because, you know, with social media these days, we look around and see the very small percent of people who have 
plenty of money or a lot of money. And we think, oh, we want to be like that. And yet most of the people who have had wealth, you know, do it small or slowly and, and it goes over time. And it's right. And I've known plenty of, of people making a lot of money that spent it all. And you always hear about the lottery winners or whatever. And yeah, if you don't have financial clarity, it doesn't matter what you have, what you make, you can lose it all. And um, have you noticed as well, in terms of gender, are men more clear about their finances in general? And if that's the case, why do you think is the case? Well, being a man, what I would say, and I, you know, you're coming from somebody who's not done a study. I'm just, you know, observing. Yeah. Men think they have more clarity. They think that they've got this. And my guess is they don't have any more clarity than women do. <laughs> they have more feeling of, oh, I'm the man, I've got the money and I know what to do with it. I've seen plenty of men make more mistakes than women do. I think each of us come at it from a different angle. And women may be more able to understand their emotions and what they want to do. And men may have more of a feeling from their left brain, let's say, of how to organize things. And both aspects are important to combine. But if you're only coming from one side, it's not going to work. And so I'd almost say from a woman's standpoint is what do I need to learn? If I didn't grow up with it, what are the minimum things I need to learn that allow me to use my intuition? Because if all a woman does is copy what men do from the left brain, they're going to miss out on the, on the valuable you know, aspects that they grew up with. And believe me, I'm overgeneralizing. And I know in this world, you can get in trouble with that. But I do think that you're born, whether you're a man or a woman, you're born with certain components that are your strengths. And intuition, whether it's a man or a woman, is really important in this business, but so is organizing. And so I think whatever strengths you have from the gender roles, be willing to combine and learn from what you, you know, didn't come in the world with. Oh, like it. It's a nice message to combine everything and look at the big picture as well, instead of being so specific to one thing. So let's go practical now. And when we think about clarity, the first thing, at least for me, that comes to my mind is having an idea of your current situation. And so what numbers do we need to have in mind or that we should track? I don't think this is original to him, but I had a client and he ended up living into his early 90s, but and he had, what, 12 or 15 grandchildren. But to each grandchild, the one thing he kept preaching, and they even at his funeral said, I remember grandpa saying, pay yourself first. In other words, no matter what you're making, have a feeling that I need to put some money away to save. And that saving over the long term can be a huge difference in our lives. And so, yes, maybe we want a boat, maybe we want other things in our lives, but first pay yourself for that, that long-term growth. And, you know, everyone has a different thing. When you start out, it could be a hundred dollars. It could be 5%, 2%, whatever it is. Once you get in that mindset of saving, I think it's kind of like exercise. You might start with one push-up, but over time you will eventually incorporate that into your life. And so I don't think automatically you pick 10% or whatever it is, but pick some money that you can start the process. And I think that's one of the most important things along the line of what's practical. Over time, we'll realize that the first money we save needs to be for emergencies. You know, that it's, yes, we want to make money over time, but boy, if something happens and the car breaks down or the, you know, the heater breaks, 
we need to take care of it. So that's the first thing. And, and I know this is more about growing money, but if we haven't protected ourselves, all of a sudden we, we need money for the heater and the stock market's down and, ugh, and there it goes. And so be willing to be slow. You know, in this world, we all want to do things now. And to me, realize that this can be a long-term plan. And even if we're in our 30s or 40s, we can still start along this plan that will eventually help us out. And I think it's really wise. And I like your perspective because you're a bit older and you see how being patient and so on really helps in the long term. So yeah, it makes so much sense. And then um, what about budgets? So the ins and outs, what the point of making one, for example, to get clarity? So everyone's a little different in this. Some people want to be very specific. You know, how much am I spending on restaurants or how much am I spending on heating and, and everything else? And I think that's fine. For me, I tend to lump things. You know, what is it I need to live on? And to me, the budget doesn't, because it, it can be really painful for some people like me, it's more of a generalist, to list everything down. And then, then it feels like money is taking over your life. And to me, it's like, try to do things that simplify. Because even I, who am in the business, don't want to think about it all the time. And I think if we make it too hard for people, they're not going to do it. It's kind of like if somebody said, do these 25 exercises, you're not going to do anything. And so the same thing with, you know, creating a budget means figuring out what am I making a month? How much do I need to live on, which includes my house or apartment? How much do I need on for other you know, important things like food and such? How much am I going to pay myself to save? And in the end, make sure that that budget ends up to be about what your salary is, which includes your savings. You know, the whole idea of, of borrowing the credit card is an easy way of transacting. But boy, the numbers, talk about numbers when they compound. When you're borrowing at credit card rates or any rates, the compounding works in reverse. If you can you know, make, say, 7% in the stock market, you say, well, every 10 years, your money doubles. That's pretty good. But if you're compounding the other direction at 20 or 25% on your credit card, that doubling happens really bad and it's going the wrong way. So whatever that budget is, and it's a hard thing for us, but we need to keep it within whatever we're making. And if we do that, again, in the short term, it's hard. In the long term, all of a sudden, we're going to see it. But we have to have that vision of how that will have, help us five or 10 years from now. I like, again, the perspective and the, it's called delayed gratification. <laughs> oh, hard thing in this world today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So once you have a rough idea, a clear idea, let's say, of your current situation, your numbers, your wealth, what is next? What about your goals? So then I think you figure out your goals of, then you're into the investing part. You know, let's say you've, you've set apart your emergency fund, you're clarifying, now that money is going into investments. And of course, when you think of goals, we all want to say the same thing at first. I want to make the most amount of money and take zero risk. I mean, that's what we want. But of course, we know that's impossible. So then I think it's really important to sit down with somebody that will listen to you and listen to your risk tolerance. Because I had an uncle and of course, he was arguing with my grandpa all the time. I didn't even know what they were talking about. But grandpa was always saying, you know, like with his golf game, hit the ball down the middle, don't hit it too far. Have a balanced portfolio. When stocks go up, take a little bit off the table. 
all the different things that we learn in, in investing. And my uncle was saying, that's ridiculous. You either buy or you sell, you, you be aggressive. You, you, you know, I don't care if one stock is 50% of my portfolio, let it go. And if I like it, I own it. And of course, over time, I saw how my grandpa's returns were fairly consistent. Of course, if the market went down, his portfolio went down, for, but, but it was a balanced type of return where my uncle was all over the map. And as I grew up, I realized I'm like my grandpa. But that didn't mean that my uncle's way was wrong. It just meant that was true to him. And so figure out who we are with our objectives. Are we willing to take a lot of risk? And what does that mean? Because when the market goes down and you're aggressive and you're wrong, and we all will be wrong at some point, then can we handle that risk? And my uncle at times had to deal with that. He finally did. He became a great investor, but it wasn't without some pain and without my aunt yelling at him, <laughs> going like, what are you doing? You know? So we have to be true to ourselves, but also realize what does that risk mean? I became, I thought lucky because my first stocks were horrible. I realized right off the bat that you can lose a lot of money in the stock market if you're, you know, if you're not careful about it. And so it, it got me on this path of learning. How can I be successful while still being wrong occasionally? But think of the opposite thing. Somebody who happened to get into cryptocurrency early on and became hugely successful, thinks they're the smartest person in the world. And then the bad things happen and the pain that that will cause. And so the key is humility and realizing, even if we got lucky on a thing, how do we handle a stock or an asset class that might go crazy on the upside? Let's take some off the table. Let's learn the simple rules. And so to me, those that education doesn't require years and years of college education or focusing. And, and I know a lot of people probably listening here saying, oh, I don't want to do so much work. We just have to understand what we want to accomplish, understand the risk. If we're working with someone else, make sure they're listening to us and then back away. Yeah. And I guess as well, the risk, I know with a lot of clients that I coach, when I, we're talking about risk, it can be like, could be overwhelming. But when you split it by goals and some goals are going to be super risky, others way less, others is going to be for your security and so on. It's actually much enjoyable as a process kind of because, yeah, you can play on different strings and um, yeah, and it makes it much better. <laughs> exactly. And even within a conservative risk profile, does that mean you never can buy something fun? No, but you have it controlled. It's not 20% of your assets, it's maybe two. And that two could grow to 10 if it works out. And if it doesn't, it doesn't hurt you. And so those are things that if people can understand that at the outset, what all this means, then when the surprises happen, they don't panic. Early on, I remember a client that didn't understand any of their risk. The, the 87 crash happened and out he went. And he said, I'm never going to do anything but buy CDs. Well, that was at the bottom of the market. And what did CDs pay You know, up until this year? Nothing. That poor client gave up so much potential return because he didn't understand the initial risk. The same day, I had clients that were much older than he was. The market went down a lot. And what did they say? Mick, you said when the market goes down like this, we lost a little bit. We understand that. But now it's time to buy, isn't it? Yes, that was the time. They had strong hands. And so if we have that understanding of risk, we won't panic when things go down. We'll actually do the thing that is the hardest thing in the world when we're scared and the world is looking fearful. 
that's the time to buy stocks. That's the other thing of understanding emotions. Because usually we say, oh my gosh, when I'm scared, I want to do this or do that. In the market, it's, it's oftentimes do the opposite. Yeah. So how can we get more clarity on our mindset then to control our emotions or to have that long-term view? What is super important? I think history can teach us a lot. And I think that actually was one of my early educations in the business was looking back and realizing that bad things happen in the world. You know, we have just went through the pandemic thing and, and thought, oh, my God, this has never happened before. And yeah, maybe this particular thing didn't happen exactly like it happened. But, you know, back in history, there were all kinds of world wars and traumatic events and, and even things that we don't remember. I had to go back and look at headlines from the 1920s and almost every week, something looked like it was going to end the world. And amazingly, that's a bad bet. You know, we have to bet that things will work out in the end. And if we have that understanding that things do work out, then when the headlines hit us, we can just sit and do nothing or maybe add a little bit in stocks if we're brave enough. But I think we get sucked into all the time looking at headlines and looking at, well, I should do something. When most of the time, once we understand our risk and our emotions and that component of financial clarity, then that means we don't have to act all the time. Some people want to watch the news. That's fine, but that doesn't mean you have to do something every time some event happens because you know what? It's not going to stop. I had a client say after you know things look better with the pandemic, boy, next year when things are really good, imagine what crazy good, you know, it'll be wonderful. And I'm thinking, no. There'll be the next thing. You know, there's, there are these wars that, that all of a sudden popped up and unpredictable, but the markets tend to move right on through it. Yeah, it's a cycle and you need to afford volatility, especially on the downside. And uh, even though I'm a very optimistic person in general <laughs> for investment, I always focus on the downside because, yeah, it's exactly when there's a crash, when there's a really deep down it's where you can do something you know you should not do. So, but for me, the, the big advantage on financial clarity is really the possibility to be aligned with your money. So it's understanding, as we said, the risk, the, the current situation, probably as well to avoid greenwashing if it's something that is really important for you. And I know a lot of people are much more interested now. And it's also about understanding fees. What do you think on that? Yeah, the two important topics. Well, let's deal with the greenwashing first. And that is such an important topic because all of us, I think we're not new. We think we are. But over time, all of us want to do good in the world. And we look at our investments as, as a way to do that. And the hardest thing is the compromises that have to be made. And to me, I like ESG is one way people will, will invest and say, now I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I've got this ESG fund. And and I'm doing good. And you look at the stocks that are in those funds and you say, really, am I really, really, you know, being, being good in the world? And so I think there are so many people out there suggesting ways of investing and doing social good. And yet, so this is, a client gave me this idea. And so this is my thought, you know, people might disagree, but investing in the stock market is not necessarily your way of putting your, your social morals out in the world. Another way, though, I found was I, I was at a conference for social investing and a nun was speaking 
And she said what she does is invest in a particular couple of companies that really want to accomplish her goals. And then she shows up at those meetings and starts yelling, you know, not yelling, but really forcing her, you know, goals on the companies to make sure that they're at least trying to accomplish. What her goal was at that moment was animal, uh, to, to be for drug companies, not to treat animals poorly. And so that was a way that she was able to accomplish that, not by avoiding an investment, but by actually taking charge of that. So there's so many different ways of, of accomplishing things. I think all of us have to look in ourselves and say, what do we really want to accomplish and how do we want to do that? So we're really being true to our goals. And by just buying some fund that says they're socially responsible may not be doing it is what I found. It's a really hard thing. And if you want to do it, you really have to focus your time. Exactly. I think we, we're very complacent. We just read ESG. Yeah, it's fine. But actually, when we look, we can be pretty surprised. We own yeah. Exxon in there. And, you know, that might be good, might be bad. But the decisions that are made in those funds are not necessarily our decisions. Certainly, if we own all the stocks, we don't own the funds, we own individual equities, we can be very pure to our goals. But that requires a lot of work. And so how much work do you want to put in it in your life? We only have so much time. And so I think that's part of, again, figuring out at the that's part of financial clarity. How much do we want to pay attention to that part of our lives? And, and I think we all want to do good in the world. How do we want to do it? That's part of the, you know, that's part of clarity in our lives, you know. And their second question was on fees. So important. You know, that you think this advisor might be charging 1%, but then you have to ask him, what are the underlying fees? Say he's buying mutual funds that are also 1%. So now you're paying 2%, which this year, the S&P 500 is up nearly 20%. And you think, ah, 2%, what's the difference? Well, last year you were down, you know, it was down close to 20%. Well, 2% meant not only did you lose 20%, you paid 2% for the opportunity to do that. And so that's no fun. And imagine you have bonds. Well, this year bonds are paying four or five percent. But remember, four or five years ago, they were paying like one to two percent. So you're paying two percent for the opportunity to earn two percent. That's no fun. So definitely, as we're talking about our financial goals and such, ask what we're paying for it. And to me, anything over, and I'm just throwing this out and you know, sorry if, if I'm getting you know, criticized by other advisors. But if you're paying over 1% for the whole thing, your whole picture, I think it's really tough to make money. And, and if you can avoid that and, and even do less than that, if you can buy index funds, you know, you can, you can get your fees down to, to half a percent or less probably. Yeah, Pauline, exactly. Yeah. For a long period of time, that matters. Imagine 1% over 50 years. That's a lot of money. And as you said, with that debt, where it's actually working against you, fees, it's exactly the same. And always you have to compare like a performance relative to something. So fees, yeah, you pay them, whereas the performance is positive or negative first. And second, if you aim to do four or 5%, but you're paying two, clearly it's not a great outcome. So always putting things into perspective <laughs> so that at least you understand. Yeah. Last question for you. What is your own portfolio looking like? Okay. Well, I'm a uh, middle ground. You know, I kind of previewed my, I'm like my grandpa. And so 
I'm more like a little more than half in stocks and they're pretty diversified stocks. And, you know, if I happen to get a, a hot one, I tend to have, you know, whether sometimes I have funds, a part of that is just regular funds. I like technology. So I'm a little heavier in technology than, so if I'm going to have less in stocks, I tend to be willing to own, you know, stocks that have growth to them. And so I think that's the right now technology is the hot button and, you know, owning old fashioned stocks. Yeah, I own some, you know, I own the, the Procter and Gambles of the world and, and such that, that are more the safe, secure ones, but I like technology. And then for a long time, the safe part of my portfolio was simply owning short-term funds, which were paying nothing. And people would look at me and say, well, how can you have, you know, 40% or half your portfolio paying nothing? It's like, well, I didn't want to buy a bond that was paying 1%, even though I'm not paying myself fees. 1% just seemed like a lot to lock up or 2%, whatever it was. But now you can get close to 5% in a bond. Now that you can earn some real money in bonds, I think it's worth doing a what they call a ladder. You know, having some that are, you know, one year, two year, five year, eight year, 10 year. And so each year, let's say that you're having something mature. I like that on the safe part of your portfolio. And one last thing on that that's really important. In the safe part of my portfolio, I like to own the highest quality bonds. I don't want to take risks. I'm already taking risks on the stock side. So if the stocks go down, that's okay. I've, I've accepted that. In, in 2008, bad bonds went down as much as stocks did. So don't own bad bonds, own quality bonds. That's really important on that. And don't worry about how much you're making on the safe part of your portfolio. Thank you so much, Mitch, for all your sharing, for your experience. I love the long-term and wise vision that you have. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I think what you do in the world is so great. I wish people paid more attention to podcasts like yourselves and less attention to the headlines. They would learn a lot more and, and be helped a lot more. No, thank you so much, Rich. Cheers. Thank you. So that's the end of this episode. I hope you're as enthusiastic as I am. You can find the notes and the key takeaways on my website, marikafino.com. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and spread the word. Thank you.